So what we're going to do is I have printed up a note sheet today that is available in the back corner if you want to get a paper one that um, has no blanks to fill in on it. All the blanks have just, you know, I didn't put any blanks on it. Instead, it is just a long list of the main topics from all of the 31 different sections of the book of Matthew that we have looked at. And so I'm going to walk through them all, just one right after the other, and give you a very brief, like, half a sentence comment on each one of them to just go by way of review through them, and I'm going to highlight one verse in the midst of it. But let's dig right on into it. When we open the book of Matthew, we discover right at the very beginning that Matthew is a nerd. He begins at the very beginning of his book listing off Jesus' genealogy, and some of you are genealogy nerds. Some of you know genealogy nerds. Matthew was a genealogy nerd. But more than that, he was like a super Jewish genealogy nerd. He knew all of the important parts of Jewish genealogy that someone might need to know. And through chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is the greatest king of all time. Or, the way we phrased it back then, the super David. Because Matthew lists David's special number three times. Uh, who knows the greatest uh, football quarterback who's ever played? Peyton Manning, right? Okay, yeah, of course. And uh, <laughs> I, just, I probably should say John Elway because that's my heritage. But nonetheless, I know both of their numbers. Peyton Manning's number is 18. Do you know John Elway's number? Lucky number seven. I'll have you know. Anyway, people know the number of the guy they're a fan of, and David's number was 14. We covered that in the first week, and Matthew makes a point of that. But let's keep going. In chapter, in the first message, in chapter 2 of Matthew, we learn Jesus is born, and when he is born, he gets worshipped by some wise men from the east who come and give him gold and frankincense and myrrh, and myrrh is a burial spice. And so from his birthday, basically, everybody knew that Jesus was intended to be the king somehow of glory and suffering at the same time. Then we move along, and the next lesson we learn is that Jesus is the king of victory through selflessness. Victory through selflessness. We learn that in two stories, the baptism story where Jesus allows himself to be baptized by a dude who eats bugs. And then Jesus goes out in the wilderness and eats nothing for 40 days while Satan tempts him. And Jesus throughout that whole time proves himself to be selfless and as a result experiences two amazing victories. Moving along in Matthew chapter 4, we find out that Jesus is the king of expanding the borders. We know that a lot of times we want kings who close our borders, who help the insiders feel like they're really inside. But Jesus is a king who expands the borders. When he decided to start recruiting people for his team, he went after the wrong people. In particular, he went after people who were like were dirty, nasty fishermen up in Bethsaida. He ended up with Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and, and then built another entourage sort of around them. And man, Jesus always went after the people that we don't think he should have gone after. And the people back then didn't think he should have gone after. But he always expanded the borders of who was included in the blessing. Then in Matthew chapter 5, we learn that Jesus is the king of a new kingdom. 
a different sort of kingdom than any other kingdom. And this is a theme that's going to come back over and over again. But because Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are such important sections, we spent a, a longer period of time. In fact, that's where we started to slow down the series, really. And I identified for you a number of different characteristics of the citizens who live in the new kingdom. The new kingdom is a kingdom of citizens who humbly bless the world. They're the people of salt and light, the people who are poor in spirit, the people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, but not a righteousness of their own and their own recognition, a righteousness of God through them, the kingdom of citizens who humbly bless the world. And just to remind you that we are called to be salt and light. We are not called to be salty, nor are we called to be spotlights. There's a quantity of salt that once you hit is no longer palatable, and there's a quantity of light that once you hit it is no longer helpful. We are called to be salt and light. And then also, we're supposed to be a kingdom of citizens who pursue character perfection. Jesus said frequently in Matthew chapter 5, he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. What they've heard before was the commands of how to behave. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not about how you behave. It's about what's inside of you, the character, and the character that then creates all the other things that flow out of you. So we are supposed to be people who pursue perfection, but not pursue behavior perfection like a lot of religions tell us to do. We're supposed to behave, the citizens of this kingdom pursue a character perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus would say. Then in Matthew chapter 6, We find out we're supposed to be a kingdom of citizens who are secure because of the Father. And that security is really important. It means we don't worry because the Father's taking care of us. It means we don't have to hold grudges because the Father can empower us to forgive. It means that we are the kind of people who don't have to to worry about where we're going to get our next meal because God promises to take care of His children in His family. These are the sorts of things Jesus says you don't need to worry about. You are secure because your heavenly Father takes care of you. But that also means that you're secure in being generous to others because your heavenly Father will take care of you. And then in Matthew chapter 7, we find out we're supposed to be a kingdom of citizens who judge themselves first. The famous story of uh, take the log out of your own eye before you try to help the other person get the speck out of their eye. Jesus tells us that we are supposed to be those who judge ourselves first, and then we can help other people. Those are the citizens of the kingdom. Let's move along because, oh, there's one more. In Matthew 7, there's also a kingdom of citizens who are saved by following Jesus. He tells the story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about two men who build a house. One builds on a rock, one builds on sand. And when the storm comes, the one that's built on sand crumbles to the ground and and falls, but the one that's built on the rock survives. And Jesus says, if you build your life on me, you can withstand the storm. You will be saved from the storm if you build your house on me, build your life on me. Then in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we come to this. He is the king of supreme power, but he uses his power to draw people close. Rather than using his power to push people away or to elevate himself, he uses his power to bring other people close. There's a leper. You don't touch lepers. They have leprosy. Everybody thought it was incredibly contagious back then. You don't get close to lepers. You don't touch a leper. And Jesus did. He let the leper come close to him. There was a 
storm that was raging and Jesus was asleep in the boat and the disciples are like, don't you even care? But Jesus sleeping in the boat meant the disciples had to go over to him, get closer to him to wake him up and then say, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do? And then he stands up and he calms the storm and it's all over. But then there's also more. He raises a child from the dead and he does a whole bunch of other stuff, but every time he does what he does, the people are drawn towards him. Of course, you would be too if you had seen that kind of power. But Jesus uses his power to draw people to him. Then in Matthew chapter 10, he's the king of supreme power who sends us out. He's drawing people to himself, and then he says to those people who've been drawn into him, he says, now it's your turn to go. It's now your turn to do the same. It's your turn to get out there and draw other people to you so that you can then draw them to me. Jesus says, get out there and proclaim the kingdom. He sends them out. Then in Matthew 11 through 12, the king of the middle. And this was a weird little section because, you see, John the Baptist had read the Old Testament passages that the Messiah was supposed to free the prisoners and proclaim freedom for them. But John the Baptist had baptized Jesus and was convinced at that moment that Jesus was the Old Testament Messiah. And so the Old Testament prophesied a Messiah who would free the prisoners. And then Jesus came across John's path and John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And then John got thrown in prison and Jesus didn't do anything about it. And the question on John's mind was, are you really the Messiah or should I keep waiting for someone else? And Jesus said, it's both. I am the Messiah and you also need to keep waiting because Jesus is the king of the middle. He's the king who says the kingdom has come, but not all the way. There's something still yet to be done. And at the end of this section, he says an amazing thing. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And Jesus says, I'm not solving your problems. I'm giving you peace and rest in the midst of them. He's the king who meets us in the middle moments. Yes, he does promise the future joy, the future victory, but he meets us in the middle moments. Then in Matthew chapter 12, we find Jesus is the king who's actually God in the flesh and our only hope. We learn in that chapter, Matthew is very clear, if you accept Jesus for who he is, God walking on this earth, then you can be saved. You can reach a relationship with your heavenly father also. Your sins can be forgiven. But if you don't accept Jesus for who he is, you cannot. That is the one sin that will never be forgiven by God. The sin of rejecting his own son and the power of the spirit of God at work through his son. Jesus is our only hope. You either rise with him or fall away from him. That's it. And then, in Matthew chapter 13, we learn that Jesus is the king who offers the greatest treasure, but a lot of people are going to miss it. We might miss it. Don't be one of those people. Then as we keep going, we came across Jesus is the king of unimaginable power and unstoppable compassion. This is fascinating. Jesus is the king of unimaginable power, but unstoppable compassion. At the beginning of this story, we find out that John the Baptist, who is actually Jesus' relative, was killed. John is killed. And then the message gets to Jesus. Jesus learns that his cousin has been killed, and he's got to be overwhelmed. 
And so he leaves Jerusalem so that he can go to a quiet place and pray. But the crowd follows him. And even though he is brokenhearted, when the crowd follows him, he decides he's going to spend some time with them. He teaches them until the evening comes. And then they need food, but he doesn't want to send them away. And so he feeds them from a very small amount of food. 5,000 people get fed from just a few loaves and fish. And then after they go home, the disciples are rowing across the sea and a storm rages and Jesus goes out to them. He's finally got his quiet time. He's finally got his time to himself, but he sees his disciples in need and so he goes down the mountain to where they are and he walks across the water to their boat so that he can then be with them. He's a king of unimaginable power and yet unstoppable compassion. And then when you get to Matthew 15, he's the king who calls traditions terrible. He's the king of the heart, not hypocrisy. We learned this uh, principle called Korban, where the people back then had basically said, if you dedicate your money to God, then you no longer have to use it to help your parents. You can use it for yourself, but you no longer have to use it to help your parents. And so as a result, there's a loophole for taking care of your parents. And Jesus called that out as evil. He said, no, God is the God of the heart, not the God of just some tradition that you've made up. Then when you get to Matthew 15 and 16, Jesus is the king of generosity and grace. There's a woman who is completely outside the family of God. She's a Syrophoenician woman, we are told, completely outside the family of God. She comes up to Jesus and she says, Jesus, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, but I'm supposed to spend my energies on the Jewish people. And she says, listen, I'll take a crumb from you because a crumb from you would be more than enough for me. And Jesus is like, man, this woman has so much faith. And then he generously heals her daughter and the rest of that story we find a number of other times when Jesus gives grace and generosity to people who just don't deserve it. And then in Matthew 16, Jesus is the king of the sacrificial family. We call it the church. He used the word ekklesia, the Greek word that means those who are called out from the rest of the world to dedicate their lives to the benefit of the other people. The ecclesia were always the people who were called out from the society who then dedicated their lives to the benefit of the other people. And Jesus uses that word when he calls us the church. The church is just the German word to translate the varieties of you know, how we go through the translation of ecclesia. But here's the deal. Immediately after Jesus says he's going to build the church, his next words are, I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 you're not going to be killed. I won't let it happen. And Jesus says, Peter, that's satanic. Get behind me. Because the church is always built on sacrifice. And the family of God is always a sacrificial family. And then in Matthew chapter 17, 
Jesus is the king of mountains and valleys. He goes to the top of this mountain. He gets transfigured somehow miraculously into his divine appearance more than his human appearance. And Peter, James, and John see his glory and they want to keep him there for a while because being in the place of glory is awesome. But Jesus knows that those mountaintop moments are not for the mountain. They are for the valley. You have the mountaintop moments so that you can come down into the valley again and remember who God is and who he has called you to be. And so the mountaintop moments are for momentum into the valley and looking with anticipation at the next mountain that God will bring you. Jesus is the king of the mountains and the valleys. In Matthew 17 and 18, he's the king of power for the lowly. I'd love to jump into the temple tax story, but I'm going to skip over it today. In Matthew 18, Jesus is the king of restoration and forgiveness. The king of restoration, this is the part where he says, forgive your your brother 70 times seven, and it's in the context of restoration. There's a recipe there for how to restore someone else who has committed a sin and how you can gently enter their life and help them grow, but also that you should personally forgive people even before they ask for forgiveness. That's the kind of thing that Jesus says his followers are going to be people of restoration and forgiveness. Move along. 19 and 20. Jesus is the king of the upside down kingdom. He says the one who wants to be the greatest will be your servant. And the one who serves the best is going to be the best. Servanthood is greatness. And then in chapter 21, Jesus is the king of the outsiders. He goes into the temple, the, the most insidery place in all of Israel. And he goes to the insider place of the temple and he kicks out the insiders because the outside court was supposed to be for the non-Jewish people. And Jesus clears the temple of all of their merchandising to bring honor to God and to welcome in the Gentiles who were being pushed out by the Jewish religious activity. Jesus is the king of the outsiders. Then in the next chapter, Jesus is the king of the fruitful, not the fruitless. He finds a fig tree, and the fig tree doesn't have any fruit on it, and he curses the fig tree, and the fig tree withers, and then immediately after that, he starts talking about throwing mountains into the sea as they are walking toward the mountain on which the temple was built. Jesus is the king of the fruitful, not the fruitless. And then, in Matthew 22, Jesus is the king of wisdom and love. They ask him all kinds of questions, and he continues to give answers that stumps everybody. But when they ask him the question, the greatest commandment, he says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, what is the greatest command? And he gives two. Because you cannot love God, whom you cannot see, if you don't love your neighbor, whom you can see. You cannot love God if you don't love what God loves. The two go together. And then, in Matthew 23, we learn that Jesus is the king against deceptive religion. 
There's this deceptive religion the Pharisees had created, and Jesus is opposed to that. Keep going. He's next, the king of endurance and reward, telling us that tribulation is coming. He's not going to somehow sneak us away from the trials that will come. We will go through trials. And then in the chapter 24 and 25, he's the king of the final judgment, where he will gather his people, but he will also identify that those who didn't look like him in life will not join him in eternity. And he says, go away from me and depart into the eternal darkness on a number of occasions. His final judgment is clear in that chapter 25. And then we come to the next one where king, he is the king of sacrifice. A woman sacrifices an immense amount of wealth to pour perfume on Jesus, while Judas will not even abide someone else's sacrifice because he is such a money-grubbing thief himself. And then we come to chapter 22, excuse me, 27, where he's the king of the cross, on the cross, confident and faithful. And we talked about Psalm 22 and how it gives us a better picture of what Jesus meant when he said what he said on the cross. And then, Matthew 28, he's the king of the resurrection life. Sacrifice is never the end. And finally, Matthew 28, he's the king of our mission. Now, as we've gone through all that, some of the main things I want you to have heard over and over and over and over again is that Jesus is not the king of doctrinal accuracy. He is not the king of behavioral rigidity. He is not the king of traditional approaches to anything. He is not the king who tells you it is your job to attack the other people who are his enemies. He is not the king who tells you it is your job to attack your enemies. Everything about Jesus from the beginning of Matthew to the end of Matthew is the story of a king with so much power you cannot absolutely imagine it and all of his power is leveraged consistently for the lowest and humblest and weakest and neediest people he can reach. Yes, Unless you accept Jesus for who he is, you will not go to heaven. But acceptance implies accepting that he actually means what he says when he says, follow me. And so, he is our king if you have made him your king. But he is only our king if we accept him as our king and then walk the path that he has walked in front of us. We're going to spend some time with questions and answers. And some of your questions are going to be about Matthew. Some of your questions are going to be about um, the review that I've just gone through. Some of your questions are going to be about our church and what we're planning to do. Some of your questions are going to be weird, random theological questions about other topics entirely. And I'm okay with that. And so let's just dig in and let's see what we can learn from each other here, hopefully. If I don't know something, I have my Bible out here and um, maybe we'll table it for another conversation. Usually what I do is I answer in blog posts the questions that I can't answer on stage. But uh, here we go. 15 people say, hi, moderators. (laughs) 15 people like that one. So, hi, Chuck. Um, 
It's probably Chuck. I don't know. Maybe Matt's, Matt's the one responsible for what gets to the top of the list. Why did you choose the book of Matthew specifically for this message series in comparison to the other gospels? The big reason for that is that each gospel has an agenda that is important to understand. The book of John has the agenda of proving that Jesus who is who he is so that you can accept him and have eternal life. That's the whole aim of the book of John. He says it himself at the end. The book of Luke, his whole aim is to give a historical account of the life of Jesus that underpins the book of Acts because both Luke and Acts are two volumes of a series. And so Luke is writing the most accurate historical picture of who Jesus is and what he did. And so Luke's primary aim is just get the facts out there, man. You know, that's his, his kind of approach. Mark's approach, he's the first gospel that was written. And so his approach is to get things out fast. And so he's just trying to get all the information out as fast as he possibly can. But Matthew's approach is really interesting because Matthew is the one that quotes the Old Testament. And the reason we need to study the kingship of Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament is that the Old Testament made the promises that we all want to hear. The promises that your God is going to save you. The promises that your God is going to give you victory. The promises that God is going to give you a land and significance and wealth and and all these amazing blessings. The Old Testament promises give us this picture of a God who's on my side, who's fighting against my enemies. And yet... Jesus defeats it time and time again. And the book of Matthew is the book that lets us see the Old Testament prophecy so that we get the picture of this is what I thought I wanted. I wanted God to be my bully on my team. And then Jesus comes out of that and he says, no, you got it wrong. I am fulfilling the Old Testament, yes, but I'm not fulfilling it in your way at your time frame. And so the book of Matthew is the thing that we need for our time today because we are a society and we are a people, especially Christians in the United States, who have gotten such in the mindset of God is supposed to be on our side that we have started treating the world like they are our enemies. And it's our appropriate response to the world to attack it. And we needed to see the real kingship of Jesus so that we weren't following the bully or imagining a bully that we wish we could follow, but that we were following the real king of sacrifice. That's the main reason we needed Matthew at this time. It's the main reason we did it slowly, and it's the reason we started with it at the very beginning too. So anyway, uh, how do we determine when it's appropriate that we isolate ourselves and spend time with God as Jesus did, and when we're just hiding from responsibilities in our calling to bring others to Jesus? That's a really interesting thing. So... um, I would say we need to just simply look at how Jesus does life. And we don't know all of his details. We don't know how much time he spent every single morning in prayer. I can guarantee you that he didn't spend most of his mornings reading his Bible. Because people didn't have their own Bibles back then. We know that Jesus knew the Old Testament really, really, really well but we don't know when he learned it or how he learned it because the only place where you could find the scriptures was in a synagogue. And so Jesus must have spent a a bunch of time when he was younger in a synagogue. But 
It's not like he had like a morning devotional time reading his own Bible. At the same time, I would say that if you and I are not as familiar with the nature of God as Jesus is, then maybe we need to spend more time in our scriptures than he spent in his. Does that make sense? Uh, We get to see Jesus through the Bible. And so before I can help someone else encounter Jesus, I have to really know Jesus myself. Just as an example of this, without studying the book of Matthew, you could get the impression that Jesus is the king on your side because you could have gone to a church that told you that Jesus was the king on your side. You could have been raised in that environment. And so without studying the scriptures yourself and praying through them, you might never get to see the real picture of Jesus as a sacrificial king. That's necessary. However, I was in a meeting yesterday morning with uh, another pastor and a whole bunch of us pastors. And uh, I was in the meeting and we were talking about helping the uh, cause, help helping fight against the, the issues of racism in our community. And this one pastor was sitting across the table from me, said, my congregation just wants to read another book. Getting us to actually do something is a different story. And that is our problem. If the thing we read lets me feel content by reading more, then I have either read too much or I've read the wrong things. But if I read Jesus, he convinces me that I have to love my neighbor. And that means I need to love my neighbor. And that means I need to love my coworker. And that means I need to love the people around me. The one problem with the question is that sometimes we get the idea that my job as a Christian is to walk into every relationship with a Bible in my hand and try to get everybody saved at every point every point in time. And so that if I'm not actively trying to get you converted to Jesus, I'm not doing my responsibility as a Christian. And I'll tell you what, Jesus's first responsibility is that you're salt and light, is that you're loving your neighbor as yourself, that you're loving them like God loves them. And your second responsibility after that is go into all the world and make disciples. So make sure they know how much you love them before they know why. But then make sure they know why. And so it's a combination. You have to do both, and I can't give you the amount of time between the two of you, like how much time is spent in my Bible and how much time is spent talking to someone else about the Bible. Read the Bible so that you actually do what it says. That's the way I would kind of try to answer that. Uh, How did you meet your wife? Oh, interesting question. Some of you haven't heard all these stories. The brief part of it, is in California. I wanted to be a um, beach bum. And so I got a church convinced that I could get an internship with them. It was a church very, very close to the beach. And so I got an internship at this church. I got a job at a Carl's Jr. restaurant, which some of you know as Hardee's. And I got a job at uh, a mall in a structure clothing store trying to make enough money so that I could live as a beach bum on the beach of Southern California. And that summer, I met the best thing that ever happened to me, my wife Jennifer, and uh, you'll have to hear the rest of the story some other time. So anyway, let's move on. Which message from this series was your favorite? Okay, well there, um, that's interesting. Um, I think probably the 
one right in the middle, the king of unimaginable power and unstoppable compassion. I really, really liked that one. Um, just because thinking of Jesus' power combined with his compassion is amazing. But also the fact that he actually says the words, I am, declaring himself to be God as he's walking on the water. And there's just this amazing picture of some Old Testament thing that is happening there in the New Testament. I read that passage to you and it was awesome and I loved it. Um, But one of these weeks, I can't even remember which one of these weeks it was, but my dad was here and uh, my parents were here in town and um, I can't remember which message it was, but that afternoon he snuck into my office at home with, he said, Jeff, can I chat with you real quick? And so we went to the office. He said, that was phenomenal. And I don't remember which one it was. So I don't know. I kind of like that one, I guess, too. But I, I don't know. I, I've really, really enjoyed studying the book of Matthew with you guys this entire time. And so that's a quick off-the-cuff one, the I am passage of Jesus walking on the water. Let's go to the next one. Uh, what led you to pursue a career in ministry? I Led is an interesting word. Um, the word that I would use for it is calling. I was three years old, and people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said, a pastor, and it never changed. Three-year-olds don't know what that means. Three-year-olds don't know what being a pastor is, but that's what I told people, and the only reason I think I told people that is because I think God just sort of put the word in my heart and never took it away, and so for any time that I ever wonder whether or not I should just quit this job and move on to something else, the, the, it always comes back to me, well, I can't. This is, this is who God has called me to be somehow. I just have to figure out how to do it. Um, next one. We are supposed to let blessings flow through us to others. How do we know which direction to direct those blessings when there are so many people and groups who need help? I don't have an answer to that one. That one is completely beyond me. I'm struggling with it myself. Because... I have the mindset of limited resources. Jesus doesn't have that mindset. Jesus has the mindset of help everyone. I don't have that mindset. I'm trying to get that mindset. It takes a whole, about, a whole lot of faith to get the mindset to go ahead and try to help everyone. But pragmatically... I see all the limitations. I see my financial limitations. I see the financial limitations of this church. I see the time limitations that we all have. And so I don't have a great way to answer that question. What I will say, though, is that I firmly believe that God gives you passion and opportunity. And it is your job and my job to take advantage of both of those things. God gives us passion and opportunity. If you don't have a passion for some part of the world that needs some salt and light, spend a little bit more time not just reading the word, but also reading about the world. Because the more you understand about the world, if you understand the word, you will see the contrast between the two of them, and God will give you a passion in the midst of that. A Christian who never reads the news is a Christian who doesn't know how to be salt and light in the world. A Christian who never reads the Bible is a Christian who doesn't know how to be salt and light in the world. And so both of those things 
have to be true. Um, what, how do you know? So you've got the passion and then opportunity. You all have opportunities. Some of your opportunities are limited by time, some by money, some by how close the people are to you. But God wants us to use our, our passions and our opportunities. If you start there, I believe God will bless it and he will give you more passion and more opportunity. And keep following that. But don't do it alone. Do it in a community with other people who can help you identify if your passion really is from God, if your opportunity really is an opportunity you should be taking care of now, or what. In community, I believe we can do that for each other. I hope that addresses that a little bit. Do you know what your Enneagram number is? I really, really don't like the Enneagram, but I'm a seven. Uh, How can we remember the mountaintop moments when in the midst of the valley experiences, when things are dark? Um, It's interesting that you use the word remember. Remember is easy. Feeling is hard. Um, How can we re-feel those mountaintop moments again? That's difficult. How can we remember them? Remember them. I mean, write them down when you're in the midst of them. Read them back to yourself afterwards. But the, the trick is, God has given you so many times in your life when he has revealed that there is more to this life than just you, where he has revealed his presence. Maybe for you it was in a, in a song, in a church service. Maybe it was in a moment when you served someone else and you saw the look on their face. Maybe it was some other time, but you have had those mountaintop moments. We've all had them, and we just have to remember that the same God who does the mountaintop is the God who brings us to the valleys. And the God of the mountain is the God of the valleys, and the Jesus that we follow and worship is the one who walked it before us. So, if you're going in that moment now, like if you're in the midst of a dark moment now, and you're having a real hard time keeping these things in mind or remembering these things, talk to someone. Talk to either a fellow Christian who can help you remember the mountaintop moments. Or if you don't have one of those in your life, at least talk to a good counselor who can point you back to those mountaintop moments when you say, hey, I need to get back to some mountaintop memories. Something along those lines. The last thing I'll say about that is that Um, psychologists have demonstrated that the Bible was true all along. The stories we have in our heads determine so much about our mental health. And so if we consistently put the stories of the truth of God in our hearts and in our minds, whether it's a a thing that God did in my life or a thing God did in the scriptures or an experience I've had or a lyric that I've got, if we consistently put the things in our minds that are the things of God, then the things that come out are the things that flow from that. And so I'd encourage you to make sure you've got someone who can help you remember so that then the things that flow out of that can help bring a little bit of light back into the darkness It says, it seems like Jesus must have felt very lonely because really no one else could understand him or his mission. He built relationships with the disciples. Are there examples of the disciples supporting him? No. Or was it always Jesus being the sole supporter of the group? Um, Read the book of Luke 
specifically paying attention to all the women in Jesus' life. They don't show up a lot, but they are his support team. There, there are a few strategic women in his life that are his support team. And we don't talk about them enough, but they are there. The disciples are largely just his toddlers. And he's trying to get them to grow, but there's no real evidence of support coming from them towards Jesus. Uh, the most important night of his life, as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, they can't even pray with him. Um, and so, but there are some women who are very important as support structures in Jesus' life. Um, I'd like to get into that more, but I think maybe that's more a blog post sort of situation. How do you decide which series we'll go through? I just basically prayerfully think about what we need. Uh, this last series, I jumped into Matthew just because I wanted to cover real kingship before we got to Easter, and then we ended up going slowly through it. Our next series was built out of a conversation Jen and I had about what people are really hungry for coming out of pandemic life. And uh, one of the key things people need is just relief. But relief, what does that mean? Uh, it means that somehow we want to get kind of some control back into our lives. And so it's the power struggle of me controlling my life or living in a state of no control that we're going to be addressing over the next series. The title is How to Restart Your Life, but the topic is going to be about the power struggle that we have between us and God and between us and other people and how that plays out. Um, there's just a few left. Let's see uh, how to have faith when everything around you is crashing down on you. That's very similar to the remember question. Uh, faith is about remembering. It's not about blind hope. Uh, hope is a different thing. Faith is when we remember what God has done and how good God is and how trustworthy he is. Then that's faith. Um, but I think I kind of addressed that a little bit. What are our biggest needs as a church right now? Um, The easy answer, because I want to think of the good things that we can do in this world. The easy answer is money and people. The real answer is commitment to Jesus. Um, if we're committed to Jesus, everything else falls into place. I'm not worried about any of the other things. I'm committed... I want to be committed to Jesus and I want you to be committed to Jesus and I want us to be committed to him together and as a result, I want to see the fruit of that commitment come to the surface, which I know it will. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. So the real answer is I want us to be committed to Jesus. Uh, Matthew 7.15, Jesus warns about false prophets. How do we identify them? Oh, don't get me started on false prophets. I did a I did a post about false teachers and false prophets about a year and a month ago that got me into some real trouble. We can talk about that sometime. Um, how can we pray for you personally right now? Uh, pray for me that I'm committed to Jesus above all other things. Right now there's a lot of things on my heart and my mind that I'm, I'm severely broken in my spirit when it comes to the, the response of the church that I was raised in. And I'm not talking about my dad's church. I'm talking about the entire culture of the, the Protestant slash evangelical predominantly white church that I was raised in, 
that whole thing that I've been raised in, um, I've become somewhat disillusioned by their responses to our current society. The um, resistance to masking, the resistance to vaccinations, the, re- the um, adoration of the Republican platform and the figureheads that it puts on its pedestals. All of that stuff has been very, very disturbing to me over the last couple of years. And it's really difficult for me to make sure that I am separating the thing that I am absolutely angry about and the thing that God is calling me to. And I need clarity on what God's calling is in the midst of all that other stuff that has just made me really upset. And so um, if you're going to pray for me, pray that God gives me clarity on what I'm supposed to do with my passion and my opportunities. Uh, And then a question just popped up at the top. Is there a volunteer group with the church to help the community? If not, can we start one? Okay, so... um, I would say this, there are a couple things that are, that are important when it comes to volunteering. First of all, um, we are actually the potentially best option for a, a significant number of people in this community on Sunday mornings. Now, on Sunday mornings, there's going to be a lot of people in this town who can find a church that is going to um, be like the church they were raised in. And there are a lot of people in this town that are going to not ever go to a church because they don't want to ever go back to a church like they were raised in. But we have an opportunity to do something that is different from the church that they were raised in. And so for some people, that's going to attract them to Jesus. And for some people, that's not going to attract them to Jesus. But... On Sunday morning, if we serve people well, whether it's through our Kidopolis program or just smiling at a door, if we serve people well on Sunday morning, then we have the opportunity to help someone meet Jesus in a, in a very short period of time. We can accomplish on Sunday morning in an hour and a half a lot more than can be accomplished in an hour and a half through the rest of the week because we have, we have people here focused on God for a brief period of time and we can draw their attention to what Jesus is calling them to do. And so Sunday morning has great potential. But when it comes to volunteering outside the church in the, in the rest of the community, I would say your number one job is to just do it. Don't wait around for the church to come up with some community group that's doing it. Just do it. Join one of our small groups and in that small group say, hey, I'm serving at the Lafayette Transitional Housing this Friday. Do you guys want to join me? And your group will say, yeah, let's do it together. And then all of a sudden you're in a group that's doing some community service. Yes, I want us to be the kind of church that has that stuff structured out more formally where we would say the second Saturday of every month we're going to go out and do a service project or something like that. But those sorts of logistics assume that you're going to follow that particular passion. And I would much rather have 100% of the people in our church pursuing their individual passions for the name and sake of Jesus Christ than to have 20% of you pursuing the church's organized structural things. So that's my, that's my first answer to that. In the future, yes, I want to have some things that are more structured and organized, but it really begins with, I just want to empower you to say, do it. Serve your neighbors. Join some organization in town that's doing something fabulous. Sunday is when we're going to try to help people encounter Jesus. The whole rest of the week, we're going to try to help people encounter Jesus followers who are loving them really well. Hopefully, that makes sense. I want to draw your attention back to Matthew. There are a couple phrases 
that I want you to take home from the book of Matthew as we prepare our hearts for communion and to close out our time this morning. First of all is the summary statement of who Jesus is. I'll put it up on the screen here. Jesus is the divine king who empties himself, using his power for God's will and the benefit of others both now and into eternity. Don't ever view Jesus as the one who demands perfection and works judgment. Don't ever view Jesus as the one who is soft and lovey-dovey and just everybody's okay. View Jesus as the divine king with all the authority in the universe who empties himself to serve others and also into eternity. Judgment is coming. But the character and nature of Jesus is not first and foremost judgment. Love is there, but the character and nature of Jesus is not to love you the way you want to be loved. Jesus is the one who says, I'm going to leverage all of the divine power of God for your ultimate benefit, both now and in eternity. But what does that mean for us? It means that you and me, we are invited to join him. We're invited to join his mission, walk his path of selflessness, and bless the world as we await our eternal reward. It's not my job to defend my rights here. It's not my job to acquire my blessings here. It's not my job to try to get other people to get their blessings now. It's my job to walk the path of selflessness, trusting that in the future there is an eternity coming with rewards. Because God loves those who love, and God gives to those who give, and God sacrifices for those who will sacrifice for others. It's the way God works. Matthew has convinced us of that time and time again, and I want to invite you into it. But what that means for you and for me is relinquishing ourselves. Every time you put something in your mouth, you are relinquishing yourself to that thing. We have lived for the past two years with the recognition that microscopic invisible particles floating through the air could lead to my death. And so we are concerned with how we breathe. And we are concerned whenever we go to that restaurant that the last time we went to that restaurant, it wasn't so good for us because the day after that restaurant, we had some problems. When we go back to that restaurant, we're a little hesitant about putting that restaurant's food in our mouth because we know that stuff can be dangerous. It's the reason why Jesus gives communion as this symbolic meal. He says, if you're going to take me into yourself you are making a commitment that I then get to control what happens. You are what you eat. And so we receive Jesus in this symbolic meal and we say, Jesus, I don't want to just taste this. I want to become you. And so we relinquish our lives to him and invite him to take total control. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. 
So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.